Welcome to the Field of Church podcast. Our church inhales and exhales the gospel every Sunday and is excited to bring our messages to you here. Thank you for joining us and we hope God moves in your life as you listen into this feed. It was a little over four years ago when God graciously passed the baton of leadership over from Pastor Gary Smith over to me to be the lead pastor of this church and right out of the chute, my very first sermon series was called God and Politics, which is like the dumbest thing ever to do when you're a brand new pastor. But I I felt like because of the nature of the election that was about to come that I needed to speak biblically about how Christians should approach voting and how they should approach politics. And, And really it was because of the nature of the election. I mean, you had two people, you had Hillary Clinton with uh, all the issues that, that went with her side. And on the other side, you had a guy named Donald Trump who was known more for reality TV than anything else. And I'm looking at these two candidates going, holy moly. And, and I remember thinking, if I don't speak into this, who's going to speak into this? So I chose that sermon series. And, and, and I remember approaching it with fear and trembling, hoping I would still have a job when it was all said and done. And by God's grace, I'm still here. But it was, a, it was such a time that I knew I had to speak into it because I could feel the polarization. I, I could feel the, the heaviness of that election time. And, and I remember saying four years ago, and I've never seen our country as divided as we are right now. And honestly, looking back to four years ago, it looks like a walk in the park compared to where we are today. I, I know people say this around every single election year, but this year I mean it. I've never seen us so divided and polarized in our, in our country as we are right now. Because who knew four years ago that by the time we arrived here, not only would we be even more radically polarized politically, but on top of that, we would also have some more issues. We'd have a a real exacerbation of the racial uh, inequality and, and fighting inside of our country. And on top of that, we have a global pandemic, which further polarizes us and isolates us and disenfranchises us and makes us super volatile. And so we have a, a political stew right now that is poisonous And this is the environment we're in. And so as we approach this election, I felt yet again like I needed to wade into the shark-infested waters and talk about faith and politics. God help us all. But I, I think I need to do this because that's what it means for me to shepherd the flock here, to help you understand how you even deal with the political climate that we're in. Now, before I get started, there's a few things I need to make sure are clear just so we can we can have a good conversation about this. So first thing I need to ask is that we leave our boxing gloves at home. I I want to know I'm not intending to pick any fight with anybody. I'm not intending to shove my views down anybody's throat. And I know that I stand to lose at the end of this sermon. This is a lose-lose proposition for me personally because I know how diverse the political opinions are of those of you who are watching this. And I know I'm going to say some things that are going to tick you off. I just want you to know before I say them, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to make you angry. I know some of you have very strong political views, which you may or may not agree with me. And I also know that as a church, we have polar opposite views about things. In fact, I had lunch with somebody on Thursday and they were telling me, Jason, I just don't know how you can be a Christian and vote for a Democrat. The next day for lunch with one of our fielder members, I heard them say, I don't know how you can be a Christian and vote for a man like Donald Trump. These are both leaders in our own congregation that feel polar opposite about it. And all of you are watching this right now. So here's what I know. Some of you are going to be frustrated and angry by the time this is over. And it's okay if we have different views, as long as we can say our point is just to see what does the Word of God have to say about all of this. If we can agree to that, I think we're going to be okay. Second thing that I I need to say right from the beginning 
is that I absolutely refuse to endorse any presidential candidate. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, how you should vote, because I think that would be me overstepping my bounds of leadership I've been given. I'm also not going to tell you how to view every single one of the platform issues. And there are a lot of platform issues out there. You, you got things like abortion. You got things like immigration, economic policy, racial equality. You got things like religious liberty, foreign policy, gun control, Supreme Court appointees, health care. I mean, just all these different types of platform issues that are out there. And I'm not going to tell you how you should line up each one of those views and what you need to do when you consider a presidential candidate. What I'm gonna to try to do is give you a lens through which you can view all these platform issues correctly. Because ultimately, you're gonna look at all these, you're gonna to have to do your own homework, but the lens by which you look at all these issues will determine how you feel about it. And I believe this book speaks about those issues. So I'm gonna leave it to this book to tell you how you should feel about those particular platform issues. Third thing I need to say right from the very beginning is that I must not pretend to be an expert in an area I am not an expert in. So let me say, I admit it, I am not a politician, I am not a pundit, I am a pastor. I, there are people who know a whole lot more about political science than I am. I fell asleep in that class in college way too many times. This is not my area of expertise, and I admit that. But also, I am a pastor, and because I am a pastor, I believe I am uniquely qualified to teach you what the Word of God has to say about the most important issues in life, including politics. And so I'm going to attempt to do that today unabashedly to share what I believe God's word says about how we view politics. And that's where I want us to engage in this morning. Because here's what I believe. I believe this book tells us we are supposed to be civic-minded people. We are supposed to be involved in political life. I mean, you just look at what the Bible says. It says like things like we should be praying for our government leaders we should be falling into obedience under the authority of our government leaders. We should be paying taxes to our government. These are all things that really encourage super involvement in, in the government wherever we live. Now, there's no place in this book that tells you how to vote or even that you should vote because they didn't get to vote back then. But today, because we have the freedom to vote, we are called a civic mindedness. And so we need to approach this book and let it inform how we're involved. But right from the very beginning, and I'm going to give you six truths this morning of how you can prepare yourself for the great responsibility of voting, of being a political involved citizen in this country. First thing, though, I think that we really need to wrestle with is the fact that you and I tend to view politics and the power of our vote purely with personal implications. We are very selfish voters, whether we realize it or not. I think typically when we think about who we're going to vote for, we vote for the person who is going to bring the most economic benefit to us, the person who is going to protect our way of life, the person who is going to propagate our worldview. We, we vote for people who will do what we want them to do. And I think that is antithetical to what the Word of God calls us to. So here's my, verse, my first truth that I think you and I need to capture if we're going to do this thing right. Here's what it is. We must vote based not on what is good for us, but on what is good for others. And sometimes those are mutually exclusive. Please hear me when I say this. We must not vote based on what is good for us. We, we vote based on what is good for others. And when those are mutually exclusive, in other words, their benefit means our loss. We vote, we vote for their good, not our own good. I, mean, I think this is just a basic core principle that the Bible lays out. If you go to the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 12. Jesus himself lays down what we call the golden rule. Listen to what it says. It says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. 
almost all of you have heard this, do unto others what you would want them to do unto you. Treat them the way that you would want to be treated. Now, I think we can go a step further and say that not only should we treat people the way we want to be treated, but we should work for their good the way we would want them to work for our good. In other words, we should vote, we should act for what will benefit them, even if it doesn't benefit us. I think the Apostle Paul digs in even more in this idea. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24, listen to what it says. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. He says at point blank, don't seek your own good. Seek the good of your neighbor. Why? Because that's what the gospel compels us to do. If you were to jump over to, to Philippians chapter 2, I know I'm going all over the, the Bible. That's why we have these on the screen there for you to see. You can catch back up and watch these if you want to later. But Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 carry this exact same idea. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, don't seek what's good for you. Seek what's good for the interests of the others. Consider yourself less significant and them more significant. Why? Well, if we were to keep on reading in Philippians chapter 2, he would tell us why. Because that's what Christ did for us. It says that though he was God, he didn't regard equality with God as something to be held on to, but he let go of it. And he, be, he came to earth and became obedient as a slave, even to the point of death. Why? Not for his sake, but for our sake. He did for us what we most needed. He lived for our good instead of his own good. That is a basic core Christian idea. And it is not one that we're supposed to flush down the toilet when it comes to voting. When we vote, when we exercise the privilege we've been given, we must do so with the other's interests in mind instead of our own interests. Now, I know as soon as I say that, there are some of you, and you take that to the extreme. Well, what are you saying, Jason? I'm supposed to be some doormat? I just got to let everybody else's needs met and mine don't matter at all? Are you saying that I'm supposed to vote for what's going to be the absolute worst for me so that everybody else can benefit from it? No, obviously I'm not saying vote for what's worst for you. What I'm saying is vote for what's best for all mankind and not just you specifically. I like how the authors of a book called Compassion and Conviction stated it. I think they stated it very well, the, the balance between these. They say, we should participate in politics primarily to help others and to represent our Lord and Savior in the public square. This doesn't mean we have to ignore our own interests, but we can't be consumed or misled by them. That right there, that's the key. It's not that we throw our interests out the window. It's just that we're not consumed by them. We're not driven by them. They're not the dominant force. So if we are doing what's good for others and we benefit from it, praise God. It means that it's good for the collective people. But if we don't benefit and someone else does, we still choose to vote and to act in ways that benefit others because that's the Christian way. But I think we see this in certain issues. They're readily understandable. Take, take abortion, for example. The reason why the, the church through the years has stood so boldly to say we must be for life is because we recognize that child cannot vie for themselves. They're in the womb. They can't cry out and say, I have a life that, that is valuable, that matters. And so we do for them what they can't do for themselves. We do for them what we would want that child to do for us if we were in the other shoe. We're loving on them, whether that means we suffer loss or not. So there are mothers who would say, no, but it, as long as I don't, I, don't, I don't have the capacity, I don't have the finances, I, this is wreck my life and my dreams, therefore I'd rather not have this child, I'd, I'd rather abort this child, we would say, no, that child has value. And even if it means you have to suffer loss, you do for others what you would want them to do for you. This drives our very ethic behind life. 
But that principle applies to a lot of different platform issues, not just abortion. So take, for example, uh, economic policy. I think we have to consider when we vote, not just on what benefits us economically, but what benefits others, specifically the most vulnerable, because this book often talks about the vulnerable, the orphan, the widow, and the, the sojourner, those who would be vulnerable, the poor and the needy. We have to vote in ways that benefits them too, because God wants us to watch out for them. I, I admit to you that those are complex issues, because some of you might go, well, that's easy. Well, then just overtax the, the rich, and then we'll give that money to the poor, and problem solved. Well, you, you and I know it's not quite that easy. When you just overtax the rich to give to the poor, then sometimes you create a very unhealthy dependency where the poor need government assistance just to survive, where it's actually more advantageous for them not to work so they can get government dollars. That's not helping them. That's not giving them dignity. And on top of that, we, have, we may have the unhealthy ramification that we actually take away money from those who would invest in business to create more jobs, and we end up having a worse economy in the long run. So it's not quite that easy. That's why a lot of people go by the principle, you know, you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, you teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime, which it's, it's wisdom. And I think we have to apply that in, in economic policy. But let me also say, it's a lot more complicated, though, even than just that little fishing illustration, because we also have to recognize that sometimes people aren't given access to the exact same ponds to fish in. There are people in our country that maybe have skills and abilities, but they're not fishing in the same pond, so they're still at a disadvantage. This is where things like immigration and, and things like racial equality and healthcare come into play as we discuss what's good for the other person as well. Maybe you can think of it this way. So the other day, my son Max and I, we, we went fishing at a little pond in, in South Arlington and it's a, it's a stock pond. So there are like a bazillion fish in this little bitty pond. And it was great because my son and I are not great fishermen, <laughs> but we just put a little hook, a little worm on there and you would dip it in the water and like 12 fish were like fighting to jump onto your hook. Man, you felt like the best fisherman in the world because you just put it in, you would pull out a fish every single time. Now let's say Max and I, same two guys, same two gear, we go just a, a mile down the road to Lake Arlington, still a nice clean lake, try to do the same thing. You wanna know what happened? Nothing, <laughs> we wouldn't catch a fish. It's the same two guys, same two gear, but different ponds. That I think there's a reality to that as we think about economic disparity in our own country. There are people who are in the exact same country and that you might say the same education system, but at the end of the day, they don't have access. There are societal structures that keep them at an unhealthy disadvantage that propagate generational poverty. And if we're gonna do for others what we would want them to do for us, then we have to vote in a way that can help them get out of that poverty, help take down the societal structures that are keeping them at a disadvantage. Why? Because if we were disadvantaged, we would want them to do that for us. We do for others what we would want them to do for us. Listen, that also pertains to religious liberty. I think there are some people who think that for Christians to vote for religious liberty means we just vote for those who are gonna protect Christians and no one else, but that's not true religious liberty. I mean, you and I know that if somebody's gonna have genuine faith, it can't be forced on them, which means they must be free to choose. So if we're gonna vote, we have to vote for religious liberty for all religions and not just Christianity. We have to vote for religious liberty for Muslim and for Buddhist and, and for Hindus as well as Christians because a person should be free to choose the religion that they believe is right. Now, you and I as Christians believe in one way and we believe it is the right way, and that doesn't affect our view of the gospel, but it doesn't mean we force someone else to view what we view. We choose religious liberty for all. Why? Because even if a person worships Allah or Buddha or someone else, they are still made in the image of God. 
It doesn't matter what their skin color is. It doesn't matter the socioeconomic level. It doesn't even matter their sexual orientation or their religion. They are created in the image of God. And therefore, we should fight for their freedom. That's why I believe the second most important truth as you think about how you are involved in politics and how you vote is this. The most important issue in all of politics is human dignity. I mean, when you boil it all down, whatever it may be, whether it's abortion, economics, religious liberty, healthcare, all those things, the most important issue in all of politics is human dignity. You can go back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and it says that God created male and female in his image. They bear the fingerprint of God. They have the imago Dei upon them. And therefore, it doesn't matter who they are or what they believe. It doesn't matter where they come from or what accent they have when they speak. They bear the image of God and they deserve respect. And so we should vote in a way that maintains and uplifts that dignity that God has put in every single person that he's created. That's the most important issue, which I believe personally as Christians, you and I are at a great place to bring a lot of light into a very dark political climate, a climate that is tearing down people, that is disparaging people and is dehumanizing people. You and I as Christians who believe in human dignity have a chance to step into this darkness and show the light of Christ. But it's all gonna depend on the way we involve ourselves in politics. And I want to know, when I look at Facebook, when I look at Instagram, when I look at social media, I am scared to death that there are Christians, Bible-believing Christians, who've bought into the lie that the only way to win the war in politics is to join the world's tactic of smearing and disparaging and dehumanizing the other person. I I think we've fallen prey to believe that if we're going to come against darkness, we got to use darkness to do it. But darkness doesn't dispel darkness. Light dispels darkness. You don't put out a fire with more fire. You put out a fire with water. And we cannot approach this and we cannot go out demonizing people thinking that that's God's way. There's only one spiritual side of the warfare that uses demonizing and it's the one with demons in it, not the one with angels in it. We don't win the war by demonizing and dehumanizing and degrading people who are created in the image of God. I think, I think uh, it's great to see how the Apostle Peter puts this into perspective in one simple verse. First Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Listen to what he says. He says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. He says, You want to have a blessing of God? Then don't repay evil with evil, slander with slander. When someone slanders, bless, repay good. Be light in the middle of darkness. Maintain the dignity, even of the people that you oppose, that you don't agree with. I love how the Apostle Paul puts it in the book of Romans, chapter 12. These are incredibly important words that we think about what it means for us to vote and to be involved politically. Verse 17, he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, please hear me, (laughs) read this with me. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Then he goes on to verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He says, you want to know how you win the political war? You don't do it by overcoming evil with evil. You overcome evil with good. Why? Because the person that you oppose is created in the image of God. They have the fingerprint of God. The very thing that would drive us to uphold life inside the womb because there is human dignity in there should also cause us to uphold the dignity of the person that we disagree with and the person that we oppose because they too are created in the image of God. And every time we smear a political opponent, 
and we dehumanize and demonize a political opponent, we are smearing and degrading the very image of God in that person. And that is something we must not do. Or we're trying to fight darkness with darkness and it won't work. Church, I think we need to put away our verbal bazookas and stop trying to mow down people we don't agree with. And we need to remember that the way we win the war isn't by tearing down life, it's by laying down our lives. We win by being good and kind and respectful, even with people we disagree with. I think we gotta remember this. The people that we oppose are not demons. They are human beings, which means they are created in the very image of God. We have to remember that. But let me also say, there's an equal and opposite danger. And we have to remember too, that the people that we support, they aren't angels. They are human beings which means they are sinful and they live in a fallen world and we have to keep that in balance. There, there are sometimes I think we put too much stock in a candidate. If my candidate will win, man, it's gonna be great. Everything is gonna work out as if that's the savior. But let me tell you, there's already a savior and his name is Jesus and he's not running for political office right now. We have to be so cautious that we don't end up trying to make somebody out to be more than they really are. So, so if I could give you a, a third truth, maybe just summarize everything I've been saying here. We must not demonize those who are not demons and we must not deify those who are not deity. We have to keep those two things in balance or we're never gonna be able to go to the voting box and cast a vote in a way that's biblical and right. And we're never gonna be able to enter into the political sphere and give an opinion in a way that is good and life bringing and light exacting. We must make sure that we don't demonize those who are not demons or deify those who are not deity. We keep it in balance. That's how we know we're going to vote well and be involved well. Okay, so I'm going to stop right now because I, I, know, I know what some of you are thinking. It's been bugging you this whole message so far. You're going, Jason, okay, I hear you. I think I can track with what you're saying and I agree with your biblical verses that you read. But can I be honest with you, Jason? This feels like it's coming a day late and a dollar short. I mean, you know the vast majority of us have already early voted, right, Jason? And even if I haven't voted yet, it's Sunday Tuesday's two days away. How am I supposed to do all this research on these platform issues to understand economic policy and, and foreign policy and, and look at it with gospel eyes? I mean, I don't have enough time for that. Shouldn't you have preached this message three months ago, Jason? Why are you just preaching it right now? Listen, if you're feeling that, I, I understand why you're feeling that. But let me also say there is method to my madness here. There's a reason why I waited to two days before the election to preach this message. It's because I have a conviction that I, I want you to have as well. And my conviction is that what you do on Wednesday when the vote is over is even more important than what you do on Tuesday when you cast your vote. Absolutely, you should vote. I'm not trying to minimize how important it is that we exercise our freedom to vote. But your one little vote won't do nearly as much as what you can do as you live as a citizen in this country who is a person of light on the Wednesday after the vote's over and all the other days after it. So I think the greatest thing we can do around this election is how we respond to the election, not how we prepare for the election. That's why I waited the last minute to give this sermon. So I wanna give you a fourth truth. Hopefully we can help, help get your mind around this. Here, here's what it is. We are called by God to be civic-minded citizens every year and not just on an election year. We're called to be civic-minded, involved politically every year and not just on an election year. I'm so amazed at how many people get all hot and heavy on politics around an election year. 
It's like all they talk about, it's all they post on social media. They just, they become pundits on, on, on these poli-sci issues right around the few months before an election and then it just evaporates the moment the election's over. And, and I believe that that's one of the gravest mistakes we can make that you and I should be politically involved every single day of every single year, not just on, a, on a, an election year. I want you to know the best way you can be involved politically is locally right where you live. And you don't have to wait for an election year for that. If you want to make a real difference, run for the school board because the school board is the one that determines what people are going to be studying in the schools that raising up a next generation of people and you're going to have a direct ability to influence that right in your local community. Or run for, for city council where you can make your city a better place by exercising your influence right there. Or maybe you're going, well, I'm not a political person. I don't want to run for any kind of office. Well, let me tell you what you can do in your local community. You can be a source of light. You can do good. That can be one of the most political things you do is just to do good in your community. It's what I love about the vision that God has given our church. Make no mistake about it. Our vision is incredibly political, even though it's not involved with politics at all. Let me tell you what I mean. Our vision says to us, we're not just going to complain about a broken educational system in our country. We're going to go to the local schools and we're going to mentor the children who are most at risk because we want to do something about it. We're not just going to scream at people that they shouldn't have abortions. We're also going to say to young mothers who are brave enough to give birth to their children that we support you and we'll adopt your children or we'll foster parent your children until you're ready to raise them. We want to partner with you because we believe that's the way we can make a difference. We're not just going to look around at our city and go, well, I hope you're warm and well-fed. I hope money gets to you by my vote. We're going to say, I'm going to actually give you food. This is why in two weeks, we're going to forego our normal worship gathering at our locations. And instead, we're going to go out into the parking lots and we're going to pack meals for the hungry in our own community. Thousands upon thousands of meals. Why? So we can feed them. So we can be a part of the solution. And I guarantee you, when we take the mindset that I can do good right where I live, that is the most political thing we can do. And it'll be light. And it'll make the greatest difference. Our vote matters, but what we do after the vote matters even more. We must be civic-minded every single year, not just on an election year. Fifth truth I want to leave you with that is just as applicable after the election as it is before. We need to pray for our president, whether we voted for him or not, and whether we agree with him or not. We are called to pray for the president. Uh, uh, this is basic scripture right here. You can go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We studied this back in the summertime. Verses 1 through 3. He says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, in other words, the highest person in government, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So it doesn't tell us like if we feel like praying, we pray. He says we are supposed to pray. It pleases God when we pray for the, those in the highest positions of government, for our president, for our governor, for political leaders. We pray for them because we're called to. And let me tell you, I know come Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, that's going to be easier for some of you than others. And like I said at the very beginning, there are plenty of you in this church that if the same president is there, you'll be ecstatic and there are plenty of you in this church that if the same president is there, you're going to feel crushed. And regardless of how you feel about it, you are called to pray for him, whether it is easy or not. Not because you like the person, but because they're in the position that God has installed them to and it is our calling to pray for them. Maybe the most dramatic thing you can do is to pray for a president you do not agree with 
because you believe God is still on his throne and in control. We must choose now to pray for whoever our president is. To pray more for the president-elect than to pray that God would elect the president that we want. That's what the Lord is calling us to do. But let me give you one last truth. Sixth truth. I believe the most important truth of all. In fact, you could probably flesh all the other ones aside if you can get just this one right. And here's what it is. We must put our hope in the cross and not in a candidate. I'm so afraid there are many of us who are putting way too much stock and way too much hope in a political candidate. And the only hope we should be given is to the cross and the man who hung upon that, upon that cross, Jesus Christ. I'm afraid that if we're not careful, we're going to be far too elated if our candidate wins and far too crushed if our candidate loses. But if that happens, that shows that we're putting our hope in the wrong place. You know, I, I had a unique perspective given to me two decades ago, 20 years ago. I lived in Argentina. And when I lived in Argentina, it was a year they were going through a presidential election. And it was an incredibly tumultuous time. It was a time when there was a lot of turmoil in the government. There was a, a rising inflation, so the economy was struggling. And there was a fight between conservative uh, ideas and liberal ideas. And, and it, was just a, it was a crazy time of rioting. And they were, they were burning tires in the streets and stopping the bus lines. And it was just it was a tumultuous time. And I remember when the vote happened, there were a lot of my friends who were believers, and they were so discouraged by the vote. They were crushed because they thought, I can't believe this person is going to be in charge, our president. They're going to wreck our country. But you want to know what's so interesting for me? I wasn't crushed by it because it wasn't my country. And I knew in a few months I would actually be returning home to my country. And so though I'd lived in that country and I felt the ramifications of that election, I wasn't identified by that election because it wasn't my home country. Well, listen, let me tell you, I believe it is the same thing for us today that we must remember. This is not our home country. Whether you were born in the United States of America or whether you immigrated here, this is not your home. We are heavenly citizens, which means our home country is different. And we're only going to be here for a little bit longer. The book of James says it's like a wisp of smoke. Here one second, gone the next. We're only in this country for a little while longer. So whoever becomes president when this vote is over, it's not going to be the end of the world and it's not going to be the savior of the world. So we shouldn't be too elated or too crushed by the results of this election. We should, we should trust that God is still on his throne. The sun is still going to come up on Wednesday morning and we can still see God do what only God can do. Look, I'm not trying to minimize the place of government or even the role of the president. It's important. I mean, you look biblically, the role of government is to make sure that it ensures that good takes place and that it eradicates evil. That's the role of government. But government can never do it perfectly because it's made of imperfect people. But what the government could not do perfectly, Jesus Christ did perfectly. He did the greatest good that you and I could possibly need upon the cross when he absorbed the very wrath of God that we deserved. He eradicated evil by putting evil and sin upon his own shoulders to the point where he cried out, it is finished, and it was eradicated. And you and I who believe in Christ Jesus have been reconciled to Almighty God and promised eternal life. That's the greatest good. And so I think it's fitting at the end of a sermon about faith and politics for us to come back to the cross of Jesus Christ, our greatest hope. And we're going to do so in a moment as we take the Lord's Supper. But before we take the Lord's Supper, I need to speak to some of you who are watching this. I believe there are some of you 
and you feel hopeless right now. Maybe it's around the election. You're like, man, this is lose-lose. I don't feel confident by any candidate. And I just, I'm so scared about what's going to happen in the future. Or maybe it has nothing to do with an election. Maybe you just feel like you've been burned by somebody else. And maybe your marriage has fallen apart. Your relationship with your children, your parents is out of whack. Or a friend has wronged you. You just feel like overwhelmed right now. God, is there any good you're going to do right now? I feel hopeless. Well, let me tell you, there's a reason you feel hopeless. Because you've been putting your hope in the wrong place. There is no human being you can put your hope in that is going to meet that need. They will all fail you. There's only one man you can put your hope in who will never fail you, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so maybe there's a point today where you're willing to say, God, forgive me for putting my hope in wrong places. God, forgive me for trusting in parents or children or presidential candidates or, or spouses or friends or whoever. God, forgive me for putting my trust in them. I repent. I, I ask for forgiveness for the wrongdoing I've done, God. And then we say, Jesus, I want you to be my president. I want you to be my king. I want you to be the one who rules my life. I put myself under your authority. That's called making Christ your savior and making Christ your Lord. And the word of God says, if you'll call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. So today, if you're ready to call upon the name of the Lord and find the hope that only he can give and the salvation that only he can bring, then we would love to help you cry out to the Lord and find salvation. We just need to connect with you. So here's how you can do that. You can let us know that you're ready to by going to a website. It's the website, fueler.org slash next step. You see it right there on your screen. Quick way to get to that same website is to text the word next step to 94253. And when you text that number, it's going to send you an, an automatic link to that website. And on that website, you just fill out a real quick form that gives us basic information and lets us know what God's doing in your life. Maybe you're ready to follow Christ. Maybe you want to pray with somebody. Whatever it is, we want to minister to you. So if you'll go to that website, then a pastor will reach out to you in the next 24 hours and pray with you or email you, whatever you prefer. But we want to be here to help you in this journey toward the hope that can be only found in Christ Jesus. So please take a moment and go to that website and let us know so we can reach out to you. But I know there are many of you watching this. You've already taken that step of faith. You've already claimed Jesus Christ as your Savior. You've already claimed him as your master. Praise God for it. But maybe there's something else you need to do. In, in a moment, we're going to sing a song. And, and after we sing that song, I'll lead us into taking the Lord's Supper. But, but before we do, you might need to get on your knees and you might need to pray. You might need to confess. Maybe there are some of you right now that have to confess fear. And maybe you say, okay, God, I've heard you today. I'm not going to be afraid. I know you're still on your throne. I confess my fear and my uncertainty about the future, and I give up my fear. Maybe you need to confess anger. Maybe you've been angry at other people because they have different opinions. Maybe somebody's hurt you who's close to you. Maybe you've been angry about how polarized people are in this country. And maybe you just need to release that anger and say, God, I know you can cause all things to work together for good. I'm not going to be angry. I'm going to see what you're up to. Maybe you just need to release that anger to the Lord. Maybe you need to pray, oh God, help me be the solution. I see the darkness. Help me be light. Help me find out how to be involved locally, how to do good, how to make the name of Jesus shine brightly in a dark place. Maybe you need to say, God, I'm going to pray for the president, whoever it is, after that election is over. God, I commit to it now. Maybe you need to do any one of those. But when you do, spend some time before the Lord. And then we're going to come back and we're going to sing a song that says, my heart is yours, Lord. I give myself to you. My heart is yours. Let that be your declaration and your hope. And when that song is over, I'll lead us into taking the Lord's Supper. Now's the time. Get your heart ready. <laughs>